Welcome to the Origin Canine Podcast, where our mission is to enhance the lives of working canines and handlers. We achieve this mission by speaking to the authentic and inspiring voices of the working canine community and by manufacturing high-quality tactical canine equipment from the Gold Coast of Australia. Check us out at www.origincanine.com. Enjoy the show. Alrighty, guys, welcome to today's episode of the Origin Canine Podcast. Um, so today I've got uh, on the podcast Ryan Wilson. So Ryan was a member of the Special Air Service Regiment, which is one of Australia's premier special forces units. Um, Ryan's done multiple deployments to the Middle East, um, and he was employed as a special operations military working dog handler, and now works at the Whippersnapper Distillery over in Perth. Um, so... Thanks for coming on, Ryan. Welcome, bro. Ah, no worries. Thanks for having me. Alrighty, man. So, um, yeah, pretty much like every other podcast in the world, I'm just going to say that because I think that's the case. The fucking <laughs> audio was shit. And, no, um, all good, bro. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it, man. Um, so, I guess um, normally when I do this sort of stuff, I'll listen to a bunch of other podcasts and I'll you know, I've, I would have heard your story like a couple of times mm-hmm. and you've told it like a billion times and you've also <laughs> lived it for real. So like, I'll try and skim over some of the stuff that may not be super relevant, obviously, because it's a dog podcast. So we'll try and get into the dog sort of stuff. Um, and because the audience is mostly military police, we'll, we'll stick to the, that type of stuff. So, um, yeah, yeah no worries. Yeah. Mate, hit us, hit us with the growing up part. Like, what was life like as a kid um, and all that sort of stuff leading up to the military, basically? Yeah, no worries. Look, pretty pretty standard uh, upbringing in WA. I actually grew up in WA in a small country town just south of Perth called Waruna. So, grew up there, uh, went to school there, went to school uh, up until year 10 there because that's as, as high as it as we went now it's only a really small town then went to Pinjarra for year 11 and 12 um you know it was heavily involved in sports I think was as, as a kid because that's pretty much all we had out there in the country that and you know milk and cows and whatnot before and after school to make some money but so yeah it was, it was uh, milk and cows before and after school yeah, so, yeah. I mean, everyone sort of did did something like that to try and um, get some pocket cash, you know, when you're a kid. Well, my first actual job ever was I was helping out on a farm, but uh, you know they don't pay you bugger all. But um, first actual job was with the roadhouse, the like as a petrol boy, you know, the Bowser boys in the, in a in, in Maruna. You know how they you used to. People used to come up and actually put petrol in your car. I know a lot of people would be like, what What are you talking about? But actually, it used to be a thing. And that was my first ever job, $4.50 an hour <laughs> when I was like 14, 15. So, Shit. What year uh, was that? Oh, fuck. I don't know. That's a long time ago. Um, 90-something. But, uh, yeah, so that was it. I used to just put petrol in people's car, uh, $4.50 an hour. Fuck yeah. That's so... <laughs> Yeah, but Some um, straight up nineteen fifties shit there. I know, I know. Yeah, the the old the country towns are a bit a bit behind. But 
Look, oh, you go back to Varuna now, not a lot's changed. I can tell you it's still pretty much the same, except um, no no Bowser boys anymore. You have to do it yourself. But, uh, but yeah, so I grew up there. Uh, loved my sport, played footy, cricket, basketball, anything really, team-orientated sports. So I think that had a big impact on my development uh, and my uh, desire in the end to, to move towards the military. Sort of, I think the... the the team sports, especially AFL, playing footy with all my mates and that, I think had a, had a huge impact. Um, so, yeah, I, I went to year 11 and 12 in Pinjara, did some study there, decided I wanted to go to uni because I, I didn't know what else I wanted to do, really. Uh, so, thought I'd do my TE back then, I think it was called TE, and then to get into the uh, get into university, uh, so I did that. Went to uni, and at that time started to get a bit interested in the military. So I joined the reserves while I was at uni. So that's how I sort of got into the reserve, uh, into the military. Actually, I actually did apply to do ADFA, so as an officer, and thank God they um, turned me down. <laughs> Thank the Lord. Yeah, because uh, God knows how I would have turned out if I went to add for an RMC. I, yeah, I, I, I just, yeah, no. So, uh, yeah, they turned me down. So I just went to uni, uh, Murdoch University in Perth, and then joined the Army Reserve. That's what they suggested. They said, oh, you know, go join the reserves as a soldier and then try again. So I joined as a soldier and that's when I realised, yeah, no, I don't want to be an officer. I'd rather be, uh, you know, working with my hands. I've always, always worked with my hands in that. So that appealed to me a lot more. So I was in a, a reserve infantry battalion, uh, 16 battalion in, in Perth. And that was my introduction to the to army, to be honest. And, you know, being in Perth, you, you know, you hear about and you sort of sometimes see in Bindoon, you, you know, the SAS, you know, driving past or whatnot. And, you know, they, they sort of, you see them as kind of, back then you sort of saw them as kind of gods, you know. They were like the best of the best. So, uh, you know, that that in, uh, interests me a lot as well. And, you know, I just really wanted to know if, you know, I was capable of doing it, I guess, so. But yeah, in a nutshell, that's kind of how I went from growing up in the country and then got involved into the military. Yeah, cool, man. So that's like, um, that's a pretty big jump too to go from reserve soldier who uh, you may have not had any particular interest in the military, as in like, you know, you, you may not have had aspirations to go to war, for example, but then to jump straight to go, oh, fuck it, I'm just going to go for the fucking, let's just go for top shelf and go straight to SAS. Like, what's what's your mentality as a young dude to just, to, to back yourself like that and go, fuck it, I'm just going to do it? Yeah, look, I'll be totally honest. I think uh, <laughs> I was somewhat naive as well so I think that helped I didn't know what I was getting myself into (laughs) (laughs) so uh you know there's always there was always that part but yeah look it was a big jump um but it's a big jump for anyone I think for even someone who's been in the infantry and was a sergeant in the infantry it's still a big jump and it's still everyone on Rio goes back to zero goes back to the start and you're all you're all treated on the same sort of playing field so 
uh, yeah, it was difficult. Uh, it, it was a big jump, sorry, steep learning curve, but I think it was a steep learning curve for everyone that was there because it was all, uh, there was a lot of new stuff we had to, to learn that even you wouldn't have got in the infantry anyway. So, um, and we had guys that were from uh, engineers, mechanics, clearance divers, agis, you know, we had people from all over the military uh, you know, we had Air Force Agi, so they're pretty much, they're more of a civilian than, you know, reserves. <laughs> so, no, no, just kidding. But, you know, so, yeah, yeah, so, no, like, I think it was a big learning curve for, a uh, steep learning curve for anyone. So, um, you know, I definitely wasn't alone in that sense. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, definitely a big jump. Um, I... I did have some experience. I did my uh, training Singleton. I decided I wanted to do the infantry training at Singleton and do the, I think it was 13 weeks back then. Uh, same as what the regular soldiers do. So I think that kind of doing, when I had the choice of doing it like broken up and at a reserve battalion or doing what, you know, the, the, the real soldiers were doing, I, was naturally attracted to doing the the harder one or the the what the regular soldiers were doing. So put my hand up for that and yeah, got through that, which at the time as a 19 year old or whatever I was, was a huge accomplishment. Um, yeah, it wasn't, yeah, it was, that was difficult, especially being a reservist. I was the only reservist on the course. Uh, so copped a lot of flack from all the instructors. But got through uh, and then went back to 16 Battalion and then straight away went to Malaysia for, uh, to Rifle Company Butterworth for like three, four months or whatever they were. Because at that time, I think that was around 2002, that time the regular army was so busy with Timor, Iraq and, and other places that they were giving up some of the other uh you know, like uh, RCB, uh, Rifle Company Butterworth and Solomons and that, particularly over the Christmas period. So they were, yeah, they were giving up those trips to reserve battalions. So I jumped at that, went over to Rifle Company Butterworth uh, as a young, yeah, 19-year-old. That was eye-opening, uh, you know. And then also got opportunity later on, I think 2007, to do uh, Op Anode. Uh, in Solomon Islands again, because the regular battalions are just so busy, they were handing them off to reserve battalions. So I had a little bit of experience in terms of, um, I guess, yeah, in in terms of the military, but not not a great deal. Yeah. Yeah. And were you single this whole time, or you had a, had a misses, or? Nah, single. Well, yeah, I had misses here and there, but was single pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Did that change the flavour of things like Butterworth and Anode for you? Yeah, well, I was only 19. I didn't know any better back then. I didn't know what I was doing. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was uh, it was eye-opening as a young fella. First time into Asia and, yeah. Yeah, man. I'll leave, I'll leave it at that. I was gonna, do you have a partner now? Mm. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, we'll leave it at that. Yeah, we will. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, shit. Uh, thanks guys thanks Brian see you later <laughs> um, man so what um, 
so from 2002, because what year did you do selection for SAS? 2008. 2008. So what were you doing between 2002, 2008 that maybe stopped you doing selection or were you, you hadn't thought about it at that point? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I wanted to complete my uh, degree. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. First, so that was, I think I finished around 2006. I did a year over in 2006, actually. I did a year over in Indonesia where I lived in um, Jog Jakarta in central Java there. So, and did some postgrad stuff at an Indonesian university um, and, and learned how to speak Bahasa. Uh, and then, yeah, came back and then did op anode and used that as a time to uh, train up and, and prepare for selection. Yeah, mm. awesome, man. Awesome. So, Pretty much my, yeah, my first full-time job was uh, SAS. I hadn't had a full-time job before that. So yeah, I managed sure. to get, I think I was 23 or something when I did selection. So I managed to get to 23 without a job. But <laughs> it was good. Young, bro. 23, like. Yeah. I mean, shit, I don't think, I don't think I, I, I got married at 23. And I'm like, even now I look back and I'm like, fucking hell, 23 is super, super young. Yeah, it was. Uh, I look back now, definitely young. And I think, to be honest, like I said, that kind of uh, being a bit naive and uh, not knowing what you don't know kind of helped me get through a bit of that bit of that selection uh, and a bit of the, the harder times because I just I was young and I was just keen and I was just throwing myself at anything and everything and, and you know, no, no worries in the world, you know, at that age. So uh, that definitely worked in my favour. Yeah, man. Yeah, I, I've, I've chatted to a couple of other guys about this sort of stuff and I spoke about a couple of different experiences on um, my two deployments and the the way I reacted very differently on each trip. And it, we were talking a, a bit about the prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed until a certain age. So like a 23-year-old mad unit running around just throwing yourself at stuff sounds sounds pretty pretty normal, eh? Yeah, I'm still waiting for my prefrontal cortex to <laughs> develop, but <laughs> I can't do maths. Um, so, 2008, you were 23. How old would you be now? 38 now. 30, yeah, okay. 38, 39. Yeah. Yeah, sweet. Alrighty, man. So, dude, let's let's rip into selection. Um, and can you? So, before you start on selection. For, for the American audience and maybe some of the other international audience, give us a rundown on what the Australian SAS uh, is. Yeah, no drama. So I guess the Special Air Service Regiment or the SAS is, uh, is part of, um, yeah, Australia's Special Operations Command. It's one of the units there. But uh, primarily involved... Well, the the roles evolved over a number of years, I suppose, and yeah, it it's, depends who you talk to. Uh, I've been out, I know I've been out a couple of years now, and and I think I wouldn't even know what's going on there right now. It's changed that much, and and talking to a few of my mates, it's it's just continually developing and evolving. So it's that kind of tip of the spear type unit that's always trying to stay, uh, you know, ahead of the ahead of the game and. Um, and things like that, but it's it's a special operations unit. We did a lot of direct action and uh, type operations over in Afghanistan, 
where we were hunting high value targets. We used uh, Hilo assets and things like that where we were doing time sensitive targeting. So, um, but we do also do a lot of um, special reconnaissance, so long range reconnaissance and things like that. Yeah, awesome, man. So, and I know people like hate this question, and I kind of do. I kind of do too. What unit, say US, would you compare SAS to? Is it like, um, you know, your your Navy SEAL Team Six or your um, your Delta Force sort of stuff? What's the comparison there, if any? Yeah, it's hard to compare to be honest because, um, like, they have some so many more resources and uh, capabilities that we just we can, we don't have because of the budgeting and and whatnot. Um, but it, and normally we were working with like the US yep dev group so the seal team 6 and um the uh, delta force guys yeah yeah awesome man cool and that i know that they use that tier system like tier 1 tier two, tier 2 units but like at least in my understanding we don't use that here do we because we don't have the same like assets that surround the units as they do Correct. Yeah, I I'm not familiar with any of the tiered sort of structure. I think it's just a bit pointless. But um, yeah, we don't have the assets that they have. To be honest. I mean, even over in Afghanistan, we were relying on American assets most of the time. So, uh, yeah, just not in the same ballpark with you know those guys in terms of assets and money. So, uh, but in terms of skills and you know soldiering, definitely we're still in the same you know definitely on par but uh asset wise we can't compete yeah yeah that's that's still good to hear that you reckon we're like up there with the with the uh the bad boys over there so that's sick man that's nice um mm-hmm. so mate give us the rundown on selection like what's that like physically mentally what's what's the process as much as you can say yeah oh um it's like there's no no getting around it. It's, it's pretty tough. Um, I mean, it was so long ago now, but uh, like I said, that, that time in my life, I was uh, mentally probably able to put up with a bit more because I just was young and didn't know any better. But it was, uh, you know, physically uh, extremely difficult. But if you followed the program that they gave you to prepare, if you followed that, uh, you know, generally you were pretty well prepared. That didn't mean that they were still going to run you into the ground uh, no matter what. But, uh, you know, as experience from my experience from also instructing on a few uh, in selections, you can really tell at what point when people have actually done the pre-training that you've set aside and uh, at what point people who haven't, they fall away a lot quicker. So, and that then sends a signal to a lot of the staff that, you know, if you're not even prepared to do the basic sort of, uh, you know, preparation that we suggest, then, you know, why should we invest further in your, in you for our unit? So, uh, you know, preparing yourself and all that was essential and following whatever the recommendations are now, I'm not sure what they suggest you do, but um, yeah, f- it's designed so all the activities on selection would be designed to see if you've done that, if that makes sense. So, uh, but that's not to say you you'll come out on top. They'll still ground like, you know, work you to the ground. But um, 
they'll be able to tell if you've prepared. Uh, mentally, look, there's nothing you can really do to prepare for that. It is just three weeks of hell. Uh, and that's in the end, you just got to remember it is three weeks. So it's going to end. Um, but to be honest, throughout my career, selection was just the start. It was just the first obstacle. And then reinforcement cycle, which went for 18 months and had a number of checkpoints you had to get past. Uh, at each stage, you could potentially be sent home or, um, and, you know, and that's the end of your career. So whilst I don't think any of the courses in the Rio were as physically uh, demanding, they were definitely uh, very mentally stressful and demanding as well. So selection soon became a distant sort of memory in your in your brain and you were now struggling, well, now working hard to get over the next obstacle and then the next one and the next one and until you got to the end. Uh, and then you get to the end and then you realise you get to a squadron and it's now you've got to start again and it doesn't, it just never ends. So, yeah, that was the process, yeah. Yeah, it's it's funny the amount of focus people have on things like, you know, buds for Navy SEALs or mm. selection for SAS. And, like, no one is sitting around those units going, like, oh, how hard was selection? Or, how, how, how good was selection? They just yeah. Like, no, for sure. And it is it is what it is. It's designed to select uh, individuals that, you know, uh, have displayed something you know something that we think we can work with but it, it's not foolproof like you would have seen the same in your career as well that people who passed selection and got through they still there's still people that slip through the cracks or you know so it's not um it's not like just because you've done selection means you're this super resilient or super soldier or anything like that at all it was just you were there, you got through, you know, a few things went your way, probably like luck, like you didn't get injured and you didn't, you know, whatnot. So, uh, but then the real test is, you know, once you probably, you know, get through Rio and then once you start your career and prove yourself and working with the team and, and going overseas and, and things like that. And, and like, like you said, selection, no one even, it's not even a in the vocab of anyone in, in the, in those units, yeah, yeah, nice. Well, for the sake of this, we're going to rewind and go back, go back okay. to it. Yeah. Um. So, what's what, any any particular standouts on selection in terms of like you know a particularly heinous physical session or a time where you were just like, um, well, you because you were saying you may have been a bit naive. Is there a particular mm. time that you went, oh, oh fuck? Yeah. Yeah, most days I think were like that. Uh, every <laughs> yeah, day was every day was a new challenge. Um, oh yeah, I think. Um, oh, the, the, one of the hardest days I had on selection was it actually in Lucky Dip. Now, that's like right at the end, the last sort of four days of no sleep, no food, of like, um, uh, and it's all team orientated activities and. I, yeah, so, and not many people withdraw on Lucky Dip because you're so close to the end, actually. Even though I think it's the hardest part of selection, we get the least amount of people withdrawing. So, um, anyway, I was on, part of the team there. And we just did a, like, 12-hour stretcher carry or, or some ridiculous task that, like, was a stretcher carry, but it was 
so heavy and we had all these other stores and it's designed that you're never going to complete the like you're never going to succeed in the activity but it's just physically demanding so we finished and then all of a sudden um we're sort of filling up our water bottles and everything and then the ds came past the the senior like the warrant officer ds and came in he's like candidate 144 because that was i still remember that was my number and he's like get in the car so i got in and i was like oh shit that's it that's me done like i don't know must have done something like i've been that's it removed and he didn't say a word and then we drove off and then we got to another team and he's like get out you're part of this team now so i got out i was like sweet all right that's all he said and then i started went up to the this other team was like oh i'm now with you guys and then we we got to the next stand and it happened to be the one i just finished so we started that 12 hour fucking stretcher carry all over again. And I just finished it. So I knew exactly what was coming up. And that was the hardest part for me because I knew. <laughs> so I had to do it all over again. And I don't know, still to this day, I don't know why they did that. What, whether they were like shifting me around to see if um, I could work with other teams or, or I don't know whether they were on the fence about me and they just needed to try and screw me over one more time i have no idea but um that was definitely a moment where i was like staring down the barrel of another 12 hour or so uh stretcher carry that i just finished and i was like is this am i making the right life choice here <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah no, but yeah so and i think um like it's easy for us to sit here and, and, and talk about it and joke and whatever, but like it's fucking for the average person to do a 12 hour stretcher carry, what are those stretches weighed? Like 80 kilos, eh? Yeah. Yeah. I think it was, I think it was near on a hundred. Yeah. Like you pluck the average punter off the street, fresh as a daisy, stomach full of food, full night's sleep. Here you go. 12 hours of this. Most yeah. people wouldn't be able to do that. So plus you had about 40, 50 kilos of equipment on like your pack and webbing and rifle and um you know whatever so yeah it was hard work mm. that's heinous bro so what's mm. um so when you finish what, what happens then do they is it just a big handshake or is it like getting the truck you're done or yeah um that, again you sort of uh you, we sort of got on this bus we kind of knew it was coming up. There was finishing somehow. We just sort of knew because no one had watches. We weren't, we weren't allowed to have a watch. So we didn't know what day it was or what time or anything, but we kind of had a sense that it, we knew lucky did. We knew it only went for like four or five days and whatever. So in the end we do this last activity and then they're like, right on the bus. So we get on the bus, but you're never really sure. You're always a bit like, mm, could be a trap seems like a trick you know on the bus and then there's all these eskies of um on the bus and we open them up and they're full of all chocolates and soft drinks and shit we haven't eaten in uh, four or five days so we're like again standoffish like seems like a trap you know like what <laughs> what's going on here because they don't say a word to you and in the end we're like fuck it so hungry and we just dug in and in the end, we ate all the worst food possible you could eat after not eating for four or five days. And then yeah. we'll just throw it up everywhere. But that was kind of the end. And then we bust back to Perth. 
And again, you sort of get off at the base and you're still not really sure what's going on, whether no one says, oh, that's it, congrats, you know. Uh, and then uh, then they start saying, you know, form up, whatever. This is what they did for mine anyway. I'm not sure. It might be different for every bloody selection, but what they do now. But uh, they formed this up and then they're reading out numbers and they're saying, all right, if we read your number out first, come stand over this side and um, – and then they've got everyone standing over there. And then they say, okay, now we read your number, come stand on this side. So then, you know, and then they've split us into two groups because there was about 40 of us that finished from uh, about 160 or something that started. So there's 40 of us and then they split us and there's about, uh, and I'm in one of the groups and I'm looking around, I'm seeing some like real jet dudes who I was like in the other group. And I was like, ah, oh, fuck, like, because I kind of sense, we knew, oh, they're splitting us up here, like, you know, they're going to say, you're in, you're out. And I see other dudes on one side who, like, I was like, sure they would have been, uh, you know, um, selected. Anyway, so then they split us into two groups and literally they just went, righto, you guys um, have been selected to, you know, proceed. Uh, you guys, sorry, pack your bags, you're going home. And that was it. And then we started reinforcement cycle the next day. Yeah, so. next day yeah yeah so i mean but eased into it whatever it's not like we you know they weren't uh you know it wasn't like we just cracked into it but yeah we started and then you know just like some simple course like sf weapons or something but um yeah that was how they that was sort of the introduction you know and and from that moment on you just were always on edge a bit like always like you just never knew what was coming up so yeah that's uh that's cool oh that that's funny man funny that they do that hey because my mine was a little bit different like there was it wasn't like we had a big fucking parade or anything but yeah i'm pretty sure we got a got a couple of handshakes or something like that so yeah I yeah I, yeah that's right you don't really but i i kind of remember it but um it's yeah different than some of the later ones that I sort of worked on as well, where they were, yeah, kind of like, you know, a few handshakes, get around, get some of the DS staff come in and chat and a much, I think, uh, a better way to do it. Uh, whereas we were kind of, yeah, it was just like, we, we didn't even really know it was over. We just, we, we were just kind of on edge right from the start of reinforcement cycle. So there was no real like pat on the back or anything. Um, yeah, but that we didn't know any better either. We just thought, oh, that's just the way it, way it is. So, mm. Yeah. And did that sort of set the tone, not just for the reinforcement cycle, but for your time in the regiment too? It did, to be honest. Um, and I often look back at my time in the reinforcement cycle and I, I think that I probably didn't perform at the level that I should have, like, or that I was capable of, I think, because I, I feel like I was in survival mode uh, for for a lot of it, where I, I was just trying to do what I had to to get to the next day, not push myself and uh, you know really improve myself and perform and do you know be the best person I could be. I was kind of like, oh man, this place like I need to survive, right? I need to get through today, and then I'll deal with tomorrow, tomorrow. So. Uh, I do think it was had an impact and it and it was kind of the way all our courses on our reinforcement cycle were sort of were run 
Um, saying that years later, 10 years later, when I was instructing on reinforcement cycle, completely different, um, very much uh, took that sort of survival mode out of the out of the equation because we worked out that people weren't achieving, weren't performing to their best ability. Because if you're constantly worried about, um, you know, stuffing up or uh, being sent home or whatnot, you're not going to push yourself to the next level. So don't get me wrong, there are points where, you know, our job is extremely dangerous. So there are, very, there are safety, uh, you know, points or safety breaches or whatnot that wouldn't be accepted that if someone was unsafe then yeah okay you know you gotta you gotta get rid of them but if it's if it's them pushing themselves to a point uh and then right they reach that point where they fail and then they go okay that's my failing point right now dial it back and start from there build up build up build up you know and that was the way it was sort of run when i was instructor um but yeah, kind of not the way it was done when you know the earlier years when we were when I went through as a student, I suppose. Um, and I think that did resonate through my whole career because I remember uh, getting to the regiment, get it, sorry, getting to the squadron after Rio, and just was uh, through uh, the squadron I went to just come home from a tour and they had guys in slings had been shot and all this stuff and. You know, and then there's us just rocking up these rookies uh, and, you know, you just would, wouldn't say a word, you know, uh, and you just, you you were nothing until you'd been away and, and proven yourself. So, uh, you know, it, it was just, even then was just survival again until we got the chance to go away uh, and prove yourself. So, Yeah. And what's it like in the unit now? I mean, obviously, you, you've been out for a couple of years now, but after all the operations and whatnot finish, Afghanistan wrapped up, and I think even the Iraq campaign is sort of wrapped up. Uh, has wrapped up now. What's that like? Even if you could speculate for a new dude going into that unit that's not rolling straight into that operational tempo like the last twenty years. Yeah, it's different. I think uh, I. Saying that, I don't. I uh, it's it's difficult to, because obviously I'm just speculating or or chatting to my mates who are still sort of there. But um, it's not. I still think there are. It, it's it's the place to be. It's they're doing amazing training. Um, they're still, you know, got a lot of resources. Getting more and more resources. I know we we're, were saying about assets and resources before, but it's it's they're getting more and more now and and their their roles evolving with the times and uh, I still think it's a extremely uh, great place to work you know as a workplace and um, you know it's only a matter of time before something else happens or or whatnot where they they get their chance to go away but um, yeah look I I still, I don't know what it would be like, to be honest, for someone who rocks in and, and does selection now, does all that work and then gets to a squadron and, you know, you go on Talisman Sabre for a month or something. I don't know. I, yeah, it'd be tough. Yeah. It'd be tough, I think. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. 
Yeah, cool, man. Um, so on the reinforcement cycle, you reckon you're sort of surviving, but obviously you get your your sandy beret in the end, um, and then you're straight into the squadron. So can you just dig down a little bit into that? So what's that like rocking up, seeing all these wounded dudes? Guys have done multiple deployments. Um, I imagine guys like RS and um, uh, maybe not Matthew Locke at that stage, but I mean all those kind no. of legendary SAS figures would have been cutting around the unit at that time. What's that like? Is it a pretty imposing thing? Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, I mean, RS was our um, uh, corporal punishment, they call it, on selection. So they have a corporal who's like, he's just uh, there to punish you on selection. So that was him. And then through reinforcement cycle, he was um, he was one of the instructors for a lot of our courses. But, uh, yeah, we had, you know, um, guys like uh, Blaine Didhams, um, yep, uh, Dono, Mark Donaldson, things like that. So that were whereas in the squadron that I went to, and it was, yeah, mate, like, like I said, it was overwhelming, and it was a bit. Um, you just sort of sat back and and did as you told, and and you know you were the rookie, so you just you did all the shit jobs, and then waited. You know, waited for your chance, waited for the next Rio to come through. <laughs> Until then, you were the, you know, bottom of the pile. But, uh, yeah, it, there was a lot of big personalities getting around when we first got there. Yeah. Yeah, cool, man. Interesting. Um, and how long until your first deployment? Yeah, we had to wait. We went straight on team. So on um, domestic counterterrorism for a year. So 2000, so 2010 was domestic counterterrorism, which in hindsight was good because it gave us another year, like especially myself, gave me another year to train up and prepare to get over. Um, so it wasn't until 2011 was my first rotation. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, because what did you actually get into the unit? You did selection 2008? 2008. And then end of 2009, start of 2010, or so start of 2010, sorry, is when we got to the squadron. Um, and then 2010 was domestic counterterrorism for me. And then, yeah, it then started rotations from 2011. Hectic, mm. yeah. So that, that 2010 doing uh, TAG, uh, domestic counterterrorism for mm. the international audience, um, what was that like? Were you just itching to get overseas or were you sort of like, I'm just going to relax and enjoy this time? And Oh, no, for sure. We were all itching to get away because, you know, that was, that was why we were there. You know, we wanted to get away. So, um, but saying that 2010 was a really good year. We had a really good command uh, structure in place. We had a, like, a good OC and good um, SSM. So it, we did a lot of cool stuff and I I got to go actually to Canada for a month uh, with another another mate, another guy I did Rio and uh, selection with. We got to go to the Rocky Mountains with um, and work with JDF2, who were the Canadian, I guess, if you want to use the tier system, tier one unit. So we worked with them and, yeah, we got to spend a month in the Rocky Mountains doing uh, high angle sniping. So that was kind of, that was cool. Um, 
No, I, uh, yeah, I know that sort of sounds a bit weird considering we were domestic counterterrorism, but for some reason they let us go away and do that, even though we were supposed to be on call. But yeah, um, it was good. So yeah, I guess bef uh, one thing I didn't mention was uh, when I first got to the squadron, there was like four of us, or I think there was more from our Rio that went to the squadron. I went to, to three squadron, but uh, when we got there, they're like, they they picked four of us and went, all right, you guys are going to do the sniper course. And this is like literally on day one. And I, was, I had no interest in doing sniper course. I I just finished Rio. I was like, I do not want to, you know, put myself through more, two months more pain uh, and just was never really, what's that? Uh, I was going to say, you probably wanted to do the assaulting role first, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I had no interest in it, um, but they were like, we need snipers for uh, domestic counterterrorism. Basically it's a, they need so many snipers on call, whatnot. So, you know, we still did all the assaulting stuff, but they're like, we need you to do the course so we can, you know, say we've got snipers on on the books um and so they picked four four of us straight off rio four rookies um and we're saying yep yep no worries yeah yeah okay whatever uh when do we start and they're like yeah tomorrow so i was like Fuck, no all right so off we went literally day one in the squadron and straight onto a sniper course uh and so it was another two months of just another like almost an extension of Rio because we were all reinforcement. We were all re like rookies. So they just treated us like Rios. And then um, that was, that was challenging. That was a hard course actually, because I'd never done anything like that. Uh, but got through, I think three of us ended up getting through, but um, so that's why then in you know, I was able to go and do the, the month in Canada because I'd, done that sniping course so it kind of paid off in the end and and I spent a few years doing doing uh some sniping stuff and I actually started to really enjoy it it's good yeah cool man mm. yeah I get, yeah that gives more context to the Canada uh, Canada thing I thought you were just over there going ah what am I doing yeah <laughs> no no so it was cool yeah mm. yeah because nice. they were kind of yeah. sorry the Canadians were kind of leading the way at that stage of um with sniping capability in terms of five eyes and uh uh, you know, the US, Australia, um, UK, New Zealand, I think, um, and Canada. So they were kind of leading the way in terms of sniper capability. Uh, so, yeah, we went over there and just did a whole heap of training with their, with their gear and, and up in the Rocky Mountains, which was um, absolutely amazing. Never seen anything like it. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. Did they have that, was it, was it Rob Furlong, I think, or Furlough, something, the guy that, you had the longest snipe kill for a little while there. The oh, there. yeah, not sure. I never met or had anything to do with that guy, but yeah. Yeah, I could have got the yeah. name wrong. It could be some other random. It could be a, it could be guy yeah. from Furlough listening to this right now going, fuck yeah, I wish that was me. <laughs> no idea, but yeah. Yeah, sweet. All right, cool, cool. So you, you've done your year on tag and then you're like, sweet, working up to get it again. Um, give us a super quick rundown on the build-up and then um, – We'll, we'll rip into your, your GAN trip. Yeah, look, the build-up was good. Um, I think we went over to Adelaide or South Australia and we did a, a quick 48-hour sort of uh, hit 
um, and build it alike. Well, we did it. Sorry, saying that the build up was obviously a lot longer, uh, a lot of training beforehand in Perth and Bindoon and whatnot. But the culmination, I guess, was this 48 hour sort of hit in, in Coltana, or I think it is in Adelaide, in um, South Australia, uh, where the free fallers loaded up in Perth and they sort of flew over in a herc and jumped out. Um, you know, straight from Perth, jumped out into the training ground, uh, training area in South Australia, and the rest of us sort of flew over domestic. And then, because uh, I wasn't a free faller at that stage, um, and then we, yeah, we sort of we inserted via Hilo. We had some Blackhawks and stuff. So, yeah, we did kind of mimic what we thought we were gonna sort of do over in Afghanistan, uh, and then debrief, uh, whatnot, and then straight into town, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was a good build up. And then, Do you reckon it was enough to prepare you? Like, is, was it pretty accurate to what it was going to be like for you in the end? Yeah, look, um, yeah, for sure. I, no, I don't think doing anything else would have prepared me any better. I think the, you know, I was put we had a lot of really good senior soldiers um, who had done a lot of trips who knew exactly what was going on. And, you know, you sort of lent on them a bit and, you know, we, we would have been wasting time uh, sitting out in Coltana for months or weeks or whatever, to be honest, when we had the, the, the capability within the unit anyway, we had the experience and the knowledge in there. It was just a matter of them uh, filtering that through to us, I guess, before we went over. Yeah, cool, man. I guess that would add to your excitement, surely. Like they're telling worries and yeah, I did this yeah. and I did that, and not like in an ego sort of way, but like just passing on that information to the younger dudes and mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. Awesome, man. All right, so hit us up with the yeah when you're getting the country. Um, and I've I've heard this story on your other podcast that I listened to. Uh, your first contact, that type of stuff. Um, can you run us through what that was like? Yeah. So it was my sec, well, our second job outside the wire. Uh, so very early on in the in the tour, and it was a we were actually a, a reserve assault team in the helicopters. So uh, the the rest of the troop went down and and did a hit on this uh, compound and we stayed in the air as a bit of AFS and and a reserve assault team so we're in a helo just sort of a circle and above and anyway the radio call came through and it was uh, like it was a dry hole so there was you know nothing there so those guys were kind of packing up and ready to go when uh, I think it was it was actually a patrol commander at the time actually seen uh, just seen some, someone sort of move in in a hilltop um, not far from where the compound was like a, so you know we circled over there and sure enough we saw some uh, movement and some gear and whatnot so uh, decided to put us down on that mountain uh, and this is really mountainous terrain too so uh the US uh, Blackhawk pilot did really well to get us actually on there because um the angle the the, the slope angle was quite high and uh you know he had to really watch his rotor 
blades weren't hitting the side of the mountain. So um, we got in and you pretty much hit the deck straight away because if we had try and go on, tried to run up the mountain, um, we would have just run straight into the rotor blades. So you get out, hit the deck, um, uh, wait to everyone to get out and then the, the Blackhawk lifted off and then we, um, you know, it was one patrol. So, you know, five, six of us started to clear the mountaintop um and you know so we sort of spread out and we yeah found some like a uh signs of a camp so like a fire and some equipment and you know there was all was still kind of smoldering so we knew they were sort of not far away uh and then yeah we just started to fan out and and uh search the the top of the mountain and i just happened to come around a crevice or like a, a rock face and um yeah as i come around i just ended up being face to face with um this talib who was standing there with his ak so luckily i had my m4 up ready or, or ready to go and um was able to engage straight away uh and then uh yeah, as he was kind of lifting it up, but actually I was able to engage. And then um, off to his side as well, he had uh, his bodyguard was there as well with another AK who was um, also a bit slow, bit bit obviously didn't really hear us coming. So um, I was able to get the drop on both of them. Uh, and I'm talking, we're probably like three metres away or something like that. So it was, Shit. It was really, really... So I didn't really do it, take a sight picture or anything. <laughs> so it was, um, it was, it was pretty uh, intense, pretty close up. Yeah. Yeah. Were you, uh, were you suppressed or unsuppressed? Suppressed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is that why the old mate didn't quite cotton onto you straight away? The second guy? Uh, oh, he, he's seen, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know what's going on through their mind, but it, um, yeah, just, uh, he, they were just sort of there um side by side you know so i was able to sort of get them both uh, yeah nice and I, I hope you don't mind it like i said before we the the call like i asked you about this sort of stuff i just like these are the little little details that people don't often hear so for them to, for, for people to get a, a like a bit of a reality check about like what's you know what's the the life of an sas soldier all about and then potentially later on the implications of that type of stuff that the government asks you to do. So, mm. um, yeah. Yeah, no. And it was, um, yeah, it was pretty, I, I didn't know what to think to be honest when it happened. Cause I was still very much a rookie and um, uh, it just sort of, it just sort of happened and my training took over and I identified, you know, seeing the weapons and seeing, and just, it just happened. I just uh, was able to get, get a, you know, I was more prepared than they were, I guess. Um, my training, better training and that sort of came through and it took over. And then then at the end, you know, we got home and just sitting there and um, didn't really feel anything, didn't didn't uh, know how to really, uh, what to think or feel because it was just, uh, you know, the next day we're back on a chopper out somewhere else. So just getting yeah. on with it, yeah. Yeah, I, I guess that's... Um... Because I, I sort of delve into a little 
bit of that mental health, and I hate that term, but I won't always mm. require um, that mental health sort of aspect of like the realities of soldiering and going to war. Um, do you reckon because you probably mentality wise, you were prepared for that sort of stuff and you've been around these other guys that have done this sort of stuff as well. Do you reckon that helped you sort of maybe compartments compartmentalize? Yeah. Nice and like quickly. Yeah, for sure. And I guess that's what we were um, trained to do as well is to put aside the emotional side of things, I guess. And, and yeah, like you said, compartmentalize it a bit, but uh, not, not the most healthy thing to do in the long run, I guess. Uh, which, you know, eventually you, you're going to have to deal with it um, eventually. But, yeah, for what we were doing day after day, like it was essential at that time. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's, um, yeah, I, I think that's a hard thing for people to wrap their head around is for an elite soldier in that environment, like first time, yeah, probably quite shocking you sort of hold on to it, don't need to process it right then and there because I've got other things to worry about. Um, and then I imagine that is a semi-regular occurrence, maybe not for you personally, but for at least for your, your squadron and your troop, that would be happening all the time. Mm, mm, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, interesting, man. Um, and are you, are you okay to talk about like what what it was like to deal with that later on? or? Yeah, yeah. Look, to be honest, I didn't, um, like I said, you kind of just, uh, the whole, through the whole war, you just sort of, uh, you got on with it um, day after day, trip after trip, whatnot, and didn't really give it a second thought. Um, it, you know, it was, it was kind of like, it was, if it was me or them, you know, had to make that a call or they were going to, uh, you know, hurt team member or something like that. So, um you know, it was pretty simple, but it wasn't until I really got out, I think, um, when I started to sort of unpack it all or it sort of started to come back. Um, not that it was, not that have much, I still don't have like a, a drama or, or issue. It's just that, uh, you know, it was a lot of, it was a big, big event in my life, I guess, that whole period of being in Afghanistan and dealing with all that. So, like I said, being, being able to just put it aside and move on is is a short-term fix. Um, but eventually, yeah, it sort of came back and I uh, had to deal with it, you know, at a bit a deeper level um, so I could sort of move on, yeah. That's good, man. It's, it's good to hear too. And I think, um, you know, a lot of the audience that listen to this are police and military, current serving or ex, um, and... I spoke to Eric Stanbro, the guy from um, Working Dog Radio, and he talked about two incidents where he um, was involved in some shootings. Um, and I asked him the same question, and I think um, he had a very similar mentality to you. He was like, you know, I was prepared for it at that time. I didn't need to deal with it right then and there. And then over time, you sort of learn to deal with it in, in whatever way, you know, whether it's a psychologist or talking mm. to people or whatever the case is. So it's good, man. And I'm glad you could you could work through it. And I'm, yeah, that you I mean, fuck, you look like you're doing well, bro. No, jeez. I mean, you're on the Origin <laughs> podcast, bro. You, you made it. I'm killing it. Yeah, no, it's good. <laughs> hmm. um, so what was the what was the rest of those trips or that particular trip? What was that like for you? Yeah, look, every day was a school day over there. Um, 
was just soaking it all in and learning and uh and uh every day was different too and we we did some really cool uh stuff and um you know super proud of my service over there and 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 everyone that i served with as well we did a really really good job awesome uh, yeah so it it was it was a good time um despite all the you know the negative negative stuff that sort of happened like losing friends or um you know or canine mates you know as well so uh it, it was a we did a really good job overall like the the entire task force did yeah fucking oath man yeah that's so true um so man dogs um i I know that you've done a a couple of trips after that one as well um but i want to i want to hear about your first exposure particularly in combat in relation to the the dogs and, and sasr yep so that first trip i did we had dogs um but i i didn't have a lot to do with it to be honest i uh, was still yeah finding my feet as just a patrol member and you know I knew there was dogs out there and but I didn't really know what they were doing or, or what was going on I sort of was overwhelmed with everything else to be honest so uh, it wasn't until the sort of second or third or the last trip really that I sort of understood and had more of a influence or more of a uh involvement i guess with the the canine capability uh and that but yeah i think we had we had some crazy dogs on the first tour we had rex his name was and he was um an absolute monster of a dog he was uh i think he was part blind or something in the end where he would he would he just it was just uh that was later on in the years we actually got him uh, he's got taxidermy. He's in the regiment in the museum. So, yeah. but um, he he was a bit of a bit of a regiment legend that he um, he was just as likely to bite you as he was uh, the enemy. So <laughs> yeah, it was good to see the the capability um, evolve all the way like towards it, from the start of the war towards the end uh, and the way it evolved and and the what they got to in the end was absolutely amazing capability. Mm. Yeah. So there's, there's a guy and I'll mark the clip here. Cause I don't know if I need to blank his name. Um, there's a bloke called horse. Mm. Is he, is his name known out there? Do I have to blank that one out? I, I don't know. I think he's out now. I don't know. Maybe some police or something might be after him. I don't know. He's a bit of a dodgy <laughs> character. No. <laughs> Nah, horse horse is a good dude horse is um yeah he had a lot to do with the capability right at the beginning of the um of the canine capability within the regiment so yeah he was very influential in developing it yeah awesome man i'd I'd love to get him on um and i've got a particular interest in sasr dogs because you guys had that operational experience whereas Mm. um, and for the listeners i was second commando regiment which is like the on our partner unit, sibling mm. unit of SASR, we were on opposite coasts of the of the country, um, and we never had the canine capability in Afghanistan anyway. So that's why I've yeah, I'd love to speak to him. I reckon and hear about those real early days, like the two thousand six, seven, eight, or whenever it was. He was there, so yeah, yep, yeah. Horses, he's he's a good dude. Um, yeah, 
Oh, definitely, he'd be uh, worthwhile getting him on. He's a character, that's for sure. Yeah. Mate, I want to I want to get Dono on, but I think he's uh, I think he's a busy man. <laughs> oh yeah, sounds like it. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, all right, man. So, um, what about actual like seeing the dogs work? When was the first time you saw that overseas? Yeah, so I I did see them work go to work on uh, on all my tours. To be honest, um, yeah. So, but. Like I said, just I just wasn't actually involved in it. Um, actually, didn't do the dog course until after my last tour. Um, so I actually never ran a dog overseas or anything like that. I I was just in my last tour was involved with some on the job training uh, with the dog handler over there because I sort of indicated that's the way I wanted my career to go. Um, and that's when yeah I had was helping with um, Fax, who ended up getting killed on that trip. So, um, but yeah, man, so seen them right from the start go to work and seen some of the damage they can do. Uh, had a big respect for them, you know, right from day one, yeah. Yeah. Mate, can you, can you talk a bit about what they're like in action? So watching them on the bite or... or in their detection role, what's, what's it like to watch them work? And I mean, when you, when you're talking about damage, can you give us, give us a bit of the uglies? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Look, I didn't, I've, like I said, I never uh, handled a dog overseas. So I, I um, only sort of seen things off to the side or, or whatnot. Um, but definitely, you know, they, they are, I was just super amazed at how the handler was able to turn them on and off, um, was able to, you know, get this dog to be able to target a specific individual um, who was a threat and, and the dog would just run up and neutralise that threat even when they had a weapon or, or whatnot. And, you know, that's the same what happened with Fax as well. You know, um, unfortunately at that time the guy was able to shake him off uh, and shoot him but the dogs just uh they were absolutely amazing and they would um yeah they they the damage they would do was would just be incredible like break bones and and tear complete muscle groups off and uh it was pretty horrific yeah shit okay <laughs> man yeah because i mean i you know i do a, a little bit of work not like work with but like I speak to a lot of cops and that sort of stuff and, um, you know, every now and then I'll see mm. some photos or whatever. But I've never seen anything like that though. So, um, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, man, oh, it depends. It just depends on what's going on. Like I said, uh, I never ran a dog over there, so I don't want to um, pretend like I um, I know. I've just sort of seen some things on the side. But, um, you know, the police and all that, they deal with that every day. So, yeah, they know what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, nice. So take us forward to um, to facts in this incident that's um, you know got you super involved with the dogs, um, mm. and I, I kind of know this from listening to other potties. Um, what was it like working with facts before he passed away? And then, if you don't mind, going through the incident where he did pass away. Yeah, facts was um, I think it was an ex raf dog, to be honest. That got uh, that we ended up taking on to train up, uh, and he. Yeah, he'd been over in Afghan for a couple of rotations, I believe, uh, or the rotation beforehand anyway. 
Um, and he just he just needed a bit of work. And the, the guy that came over as the handler was probably the most experienced handler we had in the regiment. So he took it on board. And he had another dog that was um, ended up being his number one dog. But Fax ended up being his sort of reserve dog. Uh, and we so we we put a lot of time. There was it, myself and another guy who sort of indicated we wanted to do some on-the-job training and and do the course when we got back. So we helped him out with kennels and training and all that. And it was just that was my first introduction to dogs because uh, it was like you know even when we get back from operations and we might have uh, four day stand down or whatnot. Then it was like, well, now we got four days of training the dog, like, or, 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 you know, it just it never ends with um, dogs, as you know. It's like, um, even when you got a day off, they still need to be trained, they still need to be fed and everything. So the husbandry and all that. So, yeah, it was pretty intense um, tour because it was like, on, it was, you know, we were on operation. We might be on for four days, then we off four days, and um, but we would be you know, getting the dogs up in the helos or, or doing bite work or whatever we could, detection. Um, but, yeah, Fax was, uh, is, yeah, it ended up coming good to, um, with a lot of work, a lot of training. Uh, the number one dog, actually, we did a, a night op and, unfortunately, he got clipped, got shot through the snout. Um, so he had to go take um, rest up for a bit until that healed so then fax got got the call up and yeah uh, a few jobs in with fax that's when that that incident happened where he got he got killed so yeah i that incident i guess we we uh we got into a contact in a village and then um uh there was a casualty and so we had to organize a uh hlz like a, a an evac area so myself and the dog handler with fax we sort of went out to clear a hlz and a, a helicopter landing zone and as we were sort of moving out uh we put well the handler put fax out front and uh we're kind of sort of uh paralleling this kind of wadi or creek line and fax has taken off out front and then all of a sudden uh flick back he's probably a couple hundred meters in front flicked back and got this talib uh, on the wind who was sitting behind a rock pretty much waiting in ambush for us to to walk past so uh flicked back ran in and you know it was obvious that uh the handler recognized that behavior and knew straight away what was going on uh and so uh, he came back in and in the end, we were probably about 50 metres from where the Talib was. Um, so we were actually quite close. Uh, so, yeah, and then Fax started biting him. Uh, the the other, the handler went to ground. Oh, well, uh, we started to sort of close ground. Um, unfortunately, the Talib shook, shook him off and shot him point blank and then started to engage uh, the handler who was probably, yeah, probably at this stage, 30, 40 metres maybe from him. Um, so they're having a bit of a firefight and I was sort of off to the flank a bit, um, was able to then, there was a bit of high ground off to the flank. So I ran up onto that, um, took a knee like, and then was able, got a full sight picture of the guy, um, was able to engage uh, and then, 
then we moved forward, cleared it. Um, and yeah, unfortunately found, yeah, facts. We had a few holes through him, uh, through his torso. We didn't know at the time, but he actually had his, uh, through his aorta. Um, so, but we, we did CPR on him uh, for 40 odd minutes before the helo came in. Uh, it, and that was an eye opening uh, for myself because I didn't, I'd never done any sort of first aid training with a canine. So, uh, you know, I was pulling out tourniquets and things that, and, and, you know, to try and stop bleeding or whatever. And he was like, yeah, that's not going to work. That's, you know, whatever, like, you know, so the, the handler, so I was really underprepared for that, to be honest. Um, you know, and, and then we're like, we're trying to do CPR on him. And I was like, oh, so, you know, the handler's doing the compressions and I was going to do the, the breaths. And I was like, I, how the fuck do you do breaths on a dog? Like, I have no idea. Um, in the end, I like, just grab your snout, you know, close it and then, you know, put it, put it in your mouth and blow. So, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we did that. And, yeah, a lot of blood was coming back up through his snout. And so I was just getting mouthfuls of blood and, uh, yeah, well, we did what we could, but unfortunately, he'd um, yeah, he just he, he just ruptured and uh, his aorta and lost too much blood internally, so we couldn't we couldn't fix it. Shit, dude, mate, you got me going. Poor old Faxi, fuck. Yeah, no, he's that's intense, he bro. Yeah, and in the end, he did his job, um, and he did it. He saved our lives, to be honest, because. If he wasn't there, like we would have just kept walking, and you know who knows, we one of us might have got um, that guy might have just whacked one of us. You just don't know. So um, you know, we we myself and the handler there, we forever um, think that or thank him for saving our lives on that day. To be honest, so yeah, yeah man, man, I guess that would give you a very unique. Uh, appreciation for the capability man and the, and the dogs themselves yeah for sure like I said and that was uh, that was kind of the I, I'd already sort of indicated I wanted to go down that path but after that I was pretty much like yeah that's that's it that's that's me I want to give everything to these dogs now um, and look that's just one story to be honest there's there's multiple uh, stories about dogs saving saving people's lives so um yeah that's just my experience with it yeah was 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 fax kia straight away or was was there a chance he could have saved him or was that it um i'm uh, pretty sure he was is pretty much gone from the start but well, well it's hard to tell i mean we did we did everything we could tried to plug a few holes um but he was just bleeding out internally so uh yeah yeah it was hard we um yeah he he was gone by the time we got him home off the chopper so yeah yeah hectic man yeah and i guess like um i've heard people refer to dogs as just tools um you know almost like a thing to sacrifice so that people don't get killed but i mean that's obviously that's not the case it sounds like, you know, like you have you have a deep level of respect for these dogs, and you want to do everything you can to make sure they come home alive and give them every courtesy you would give another operator too. So, hundred percent, hundred percent, mate. So we treated these dogs like another team member, 
like they were an operator. So it was it, it was a big deal losing Fax. Uh, and, you know, we had a proper ceremony and, and everything for him. And, uh, you know, end of the day, the, what we were told, what we were sort of taught, uh, you know, is these, got, these dogs are another team member. They are consider them like an operator. So you don't just send them through a doorway to get shot or you don't just throw their lives away. By the end of the day, if one of us has to go through that door, then he's going first because that's his job. So, um, uh, you know, a, a massive respect out of him. And, and we, you know, I would never, through my career or any dog handler I knew, would never just um, just put a dog through a doorway for no reason. The only reason you'd use a dog or, or put him in some sort of risk would be because we have to go in as well. Like if we didn't have to go in there, then he's not going in. Yeah. So, um, yeah, definitely not a tool just to be, yeah, thrown away and expense because, um, they take just as long to train up as well. So, um, you know, we don't, and, and yeah, like I said, we treated them like a team member. And, um, there's, there was a, a former colleague of mine was on the 2013 rotation, um, with when Cam Baird passed away got shot through that doorway um, mm. and I think that would have been a perfect a perfect example of when you would have potentially used a dog so that someone like Cam Baird wouldn't have had to go through and then get shot. Yeah, so. de- definitely. Um, you know, and that was their, that was their job at the end of the day was to go through um, and, or be out in front of us. And unfortunately, you know, things like that, with facts was, was happened, but you know, myself and the handler are still here because of that. So, yeah. Is there anything in particular that you do to honor facts or, or like a tattoo or something, or, or you like a little, I don't know, fucking something that you do for him, or is it just something that just lives in your head? Oh, look, it's, it's, uh, there's, it's probably something that I just sort of deal with myself, but, and, and with the handler as well, you know, um, but to be honest, the regiment um, uh, respects him as well. So all the dogs that got killed in action have their, their stainless steel bowls with their names and, and everything, the dates of their service and whatnot, when they were killed in action in, in the uh, Gratwick club. So you know, they're, they're often there and, and occasionally when I'm there, if I'm ever there anymore, grab that bowl down and fill it with something and have a little drink out of it. So uh, just as in memory for him. So, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting tradition too, man. Like um, not in a funny way sort of thing, but like that's a really, um, I like that. I think that's, that's really cool, man. It's a great way to honor a dog like that. You know, we drink from the same bowl and mm. Use some of what I have. It's a bit of yours too. So I like that, man. Mm, mm. Oh man, that was somber as fuck, bro. <laughs> Sorry, bro. I don't mean to bring, no, no, bring down good. the mood, but yeah. Nah, not at all. No, that, that's that's what I mean. This is why I do the podcast, mate. Because, mm. like, you know, as intense as that story is, uh, and some people, um, you know, would find it really difficult to listen to that. And I, and I think that's that's the whole point, man. Is because, I mean. If if we're not telling the stories, then they just they disappear, they go away. So mm. um, I think, yeah, thank you, man. I appreciate that, dude. 
Um, dude, right, let's switch gears a bit, man. I want to mm. I want to hear a little bit about your actual dog career, um, handler time, watching the unit capability grow, and then I want to hear about what you're doing now. So, yeah, if you want to tell us about your handler course, man. Yeah, cool. So I got back uh, my last tour and, and then finally got onto the, the dog handling course, and that's where I uh, got introduced to my uh, my dog that I had for my entire career of a dog handling career and who I have in my backyard right now. Uh, and his name's Kenny and he, yeah, he's exactly what you can imagine with a name like Kenny. So, uh, (laughs) I'll be honest. I was a little disappointed when I got him because I was like, there's all these other cool dogs like names, Odin or Thor or like, you know, cool you know names or whatever and i then got kenny and i was like <laughs> what's going with that like what's what's what good's kenny you know so anyway but uh ended up yeah he was he was a bit of a, a um a really popular dog around the regiment because he was just a bit of a um, character i don't know and um anyway we we first got introduced and then uh i guess i was before I'd done the course, actually, I think, and we were uh, sort of doing on um, OJTs, on-the-job training, kind of at, up at the cell leading up to the course, you know. So I'd go up there and they'd be like, all right, this is your dog. Get to know him, whatever. Take him for a run. And in those days, you could get the dog and go for a run around the base, um, let him off lead, whatever, um, you know, as long as you had control of the dog. Which I thought, oh, I've done a fair bit of training overseas with, you know, that handler and I've come back here and I've done a bit. I was like, yeah, I can go for a run with a dog and keep control. Like, it's pretty easy. Yeah, but I didn't really know Kenny that much and he didn't know me. So I got him and we uh, went to go for a run and I let him off a lead and boom, he's gone. He just ran off. Like, didn't know where he was going, but he just was not coming back to me. That's sure. So he just went and he, he ran off and ended up going down the oval. Um, so I'm chasing after him. And luckily there was some other handlers on the oval doing some dog training and they were able to uh, like coax him over, uh, got him, got control of him. And then like, you know, five minutes later, I rock up all breathless chasing <laughs> after him. Like, you see my dog, you see my dog, man. Like, yeah, yeah, mate. No, we got him. So that was my introduction to Kenny. He just fucking ran off on me from day one. So I knew I had a battle ahead of me because he was a very independent dog. Uh, took a very long time to bond with him, to be honest. He was just, um, yeah, a, a very independent dog. So, But in the end, we ended up, yeah, bonding and get a really uh, strong bond, actually. And we ended up being together for about four years in the squadron, which was a, a, a good time. Uh, and, you know, he was never the, the regiment's best dog. He was always a bit of a character and always had, um, used to do stupid things like he'd be out front and then, you know, out front of you and he'd be looking back at you um, and he'd run into a tree or something like, you know, he would do all these dumb things. Uh, so, which the boys all loved. So they loved him because he was just, entertainment um but you know when he could when he wanted to he could turn it on he could really he had a really strong bite he was really aggressive um you know he would do anything for a kong 
like absolutely anything. He would work his ass off. So easy to train. Um, the only issue was he just would never let go of the Kong. So I never, and to this day, I don't even bother trying to get it off him. So he he just would not let it go. So, <laughs> you know, there's just some battles you just give up, you know. <laughs> but no, so I did the course in 2013, got Kenny. Uh, that was, uh, realised how much I, how little I actually knew about dogs um, when I did that course. Uh, and it was very eye-opening and uh, was talk about a steep learning curve, like that course, you know, in the time frame that you got and the amount of uh, information and knowledge you're trying to pick up is incredible. Like it's, um, you know, and not only now, you, you're not just, you know, responsible for your own actions. You're trying to uh, do your, your regular job, so assaulting or whatever it is, but now you've got to do it with another animal beside you that's thinking and doing things on his own. Like, so, you know, it was a whole nother level of um, competency, I guess, which uh, it was very difficult. Yeah. It was a tough course. Yeah. So outside the course, once you were in back in the squadron with Kenny, what's it like balancing, oh, sorry, not even balancing. Do you have to sell the capability back to the squadron or do they sort of inherently know the value of the dogs because of previous deployments? Yeah, look, it depended on, on who you were talking to. Uh, if you had someone who had a positive experience with a dog, you wouldn't have to sell it. But if you had someone who hadn't had any experience or maybe had a negative experience, then, yeah, you were it was, you were fighting an uphill battle from the start. So, uh, But generally, generally speaking, uh, those years that I was a handler, because it was really post uh, just right after Afghan, most, if not everyone, was... Um, really supportive of the dogs, so because they'd seen what what um, benefit the capability was. So, uh, yeah, but then I guess the next thing was balancing doing your your commitments to the troop and your your actual you know assaulting role or whatever the role is um, that you're going to do. Plus now training and uh, integrating a canine into the troop as well. So uh, it was challenging often. Um, that's why a lot of dog handlers, you'd have to do all the, the troop training and then once you finish troop training, everyone has to go home, you would go out the dog cell, get your dog and do some training. Um, because not every scenario or not every training serial that you ran in the troop was suitable to bring your dog. Uh, and that was that was another thing I learned straight up because I was like, I wanted to bring my dog to everything. And it's like, you know, let's do, we've got to do this with the dog or do this, that, and then... You know, you soon realise you're just you're just annoying a lot of people because um, the dog's not suitable for every activity, and uh, you really had to pick and choose which was the best activity. Because also, if if the if the dog wasn't up for it, and it was a training serial that was going to evolve and continue regardless of what uh, your dog did, then you know, it could set your dog back if he made a, an error or something and you didn't have the capacity to stop and, and rectify it or or, uh, or change the scenario, then um, you, you could be in reinforcing bad behaviour. So you really had to pick um, what serial and what training you were going to be involved in uh, and then if, if any, and then, you know, a lot of it was after hours work as well. Yeah. Had Kenny done any deployments before you got him or did you get him when he was quite young? 
No, I got him. No, he hadn't. I was his first handler. Um, I think he was. It was about twelve months when I got him. Uh, so yeah, reasonably young, bit of a juvenile dog. I mean, he's still mentally a juvenile, even though he's twelve years old now. But he <laughs> hasn't changed. But um, yeah. So uh, yeah, he he never did a, a tour over in Afghan or anything like that. Um, we did some trips to like Asia and over East and things like that. But um, no, no deployments or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. And how come um, any particular reason you didn't go overseas again after 2013? Because I think there was what another rotation in like 2014. Yeah. It just, I think. Just didn't. Yeah. Cause, nah. Cause I think there was a couple after the last one I did, but then when we were due to come back on and to go again, they'd, they'd canned it. it would, that was it. So I uh, just missed out on going back again with Kenny, to be honest. So, yeah. Yeah, cool. Mm. Yeah. Alrighty. So um, you did four years in the cell and then was that four years as a handler? Sorry, four years in the squadron uh, as a handler. So um, with Kenny. Uh, and then decided to go up to the canine cell uh, in, a, in an instructor role to help uh, develop young dogs and also um, mainly to run the canine course, so to train handlers, yeah. Yeah, cool. And so by that stage, obviously, you've got your SAS dog handling skills down pat. Um, what about in terms of like your your dog training methodology, were you deep in that space or were you just like, I'll just do the way that the regiment wants it to do? Uh, no. So there's no real way. So, so that the regiment doesn't dictate what sort of methodology you use. Um, but so, so the way I sort of always seen it and, and probably doesn't, not everyone would agree, but is there's the handler and then there's a trainer. So a dog handler their role is to be able to effectively handle and use the dog tactically. Um, so, you know, it was my job as a handler to be able to um, deploy that capability effectively. It was the trainer's role who we had, um, you know, Rafi Air Force dog handlers and other people who had a lot more knowledge in developing and training dogs. It was their job. Um, to work with us to be able to train the dog um, to get them up to, you know, so, so then I could use it as a capability. So um, I had a little bit of training or development knowledge, uh, but most of the handler's knowledge was on employing that capability and it was the trainer that really had that, you know, dog training methodology or, um, you know, skill set to be able to go. If I went and said, hey, my dog's, um, he just keeps yelping and barking every time I go near a doorway, um, which is, you know, a super common problem, right? And then um, the trainer would go, okay, right, this is what we're going to do to fix that. And we would work together then, but but they had the knowledge, if that makes sense. Um, Yeah. Was that Jace Kelly at that time? Yeah, actually, it was. Yeah, did a lot of work. JC was, yeah, there. Yeah. That's, that's I, remember, I remember now, that's the first podcast I heard you on was his one. It was, yeah, yeah. House that, Kennels, I think it was, yeah. 
Yeah, that was a good. Um, we did all those. So there was a couple of podcasts actually we did I did with him, but we did them all at once, and uh, we started, you know, drinking whiskey right from the start. And by the fourth episode, which was four hours in, uh, we couldn't even barely talk. So there was a, there's a, there's a like there's a secret fourth episode out there that he he didn't release because we both couldn't barely talk. So. <laughs> I'm fucking getting that, Jace. I'm coming after you, Jace. I'm gonna, I'll text him after this and go, oh, he's Yeah, that. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, cool, man. So did you see Jace when he was transitioning out? And uh, I think he had a bit of trouble, I think, when he left. Or maybe that was after he left the regiment. Yeah, uh, not sure. But um, I've always kept in contact with Jace. We've always been good mates. Um, always really respected his knowledge. Uh, and his ability to develop and train dogs. So uh, he was always go-to guy when I had issues or um, things, you know, problems to solve, always give him a call. So even today, these days, I still um, keep in contact with him. He brings his okay, uh, his litters down here every now and then to do some um, environmental sort of training with them around the distillery and, and things like that. And, and the public love it when they see all these little puppies getting around. So it's a win-win yeah. for everyone. Yeah. Cause when he and I did uh, land forces together a, a few weeks ago and he brought Ash, one of oh, his yep. dogs. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we had the, he just totally fucking stole my thunder. I had him <laughs> on I had on my kit laid out. I had this fake fucking dog and he was there with this real dog and everyone's going yeah. over to pat it. And I'm just like, this is bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sounds like Jace. Yeah. Mate, he, he was going on about before we got there. Oh, I'm not a people person. Da, da, da. I like to stay in my lane. Da, da, da. And then when he was there, he was loving it, man. He was soaking it up. People were patting his yeah. dog. Yeah. But he needs, that's why he ta- he needs a dog. Otherwise, yeah, people don't want to come near him. So. <laughs> He needs to do it. JC need to do a people handling course. <laughs> um oh, fuck now, I've forgotten what I was gonna fucking ask you. <laughs> what do you ask me a question? Um, so when you were like uh, after you'd done your time in the in the dog cell, um, did you make the decision to leave or they just it was like this is you've done X amount of years in the cell, it's time to go. Oh yeah, no, so they, they keep rotating um, sort of every uh, year and a half or two years, they'll replace um, because you don't want to get too stagnant in in one role because you'll get left behind then if you want to go back to a squadron or or whatnot. So I actually did, I then went and did another year because I really enjoyed um, in the support squadron in in training and running courses and things like that. So uh, running, we used to do validations twice a year. So validate all the operational dogs and, you know, I used to do validations in Melbourne and uh, all sorts of stuff. So I really enjoyed organising and, and running that kind of thing and, and the course itself. So I did another year, actually. I got a, I got a, I was able to go from canine cell to mobility cell. So I spent a year um, on motorbikes and stuff there. Lucky I didn't kill myself but because uh, I'm not a very good rider on a motorbike. But... Um, was able to do that and then help run the course, mobility course as well. So I just got a lot of, um, I guess, enjoyment out of uh, helping run and train people. So, and then, uh, yeah, then they were like, all right, you need to go back to a squadron. So 
Um, then I went back to two squadron after that um, for about a year. And that's during that year, I just, uh, that's when I started to decide that I wanted to get out. Yeah. yeah. Any particular impetus for getting out or you just like, eh, chips are over. I've done a, lot, done a lot of stuff. Time to move on. Yep. Yeah. That definitely played a part uh, in it. And I just kind of felt like my um, sort of my career had run its course and, yeah, if I wasn't going to get out now, then uh, when? And, uh, you know, I'm still young enough now to, to start again, I suppose, and, and to start another career. Otherwise, if I was going to go down, you know, um, continue to climb the ranks or whatever in the regiment, then, you know, God knows when I'd get out. But, uh, and I just wasn't enjoying it as much as I was beforehand, to be honest. And, yeah, it just felt like the right time. And a lot of my the mates that I did selection with in Rio and a lot of the guys I did my trips with and, and that were all getting out. And it was just it just seemed like it was the right time. Yeah. So what did you have a plan for getting out? Or did you were just like, ah, I think I'm done, I'm just going to leave. Because I know you did the MBA, didn't you? Yeah, I did. So I was always sort of, always thought, I'll get out eventually. And so I had a, I was like, I need to go back to some more study to help prepare for that transition. So I did my MBA at uh, university of Western Australia. Um, so I finished that and then, yeah, uh, pretty much got out. I made, I, I met a, a lot of cool people on that and made a lot of good contacts. So I kind of knew there and then that, um, you know, I, it, it's not as scary getting out like, uh, I was sort of, um, yeah, able to sort of dip my toe, you know, so, so to speak without, uh, and then I decided, all right, I'm going to, uh, bite the bullet and just get it, go out and get amongst it. So no real plan though, to be honest, um, just sort of took it as it come. Yeah. Okay. And what, um, did, so you, you would have met like Dave Parker and a couple of guys like that, maybe doing NBA or. No, we did, or he did it, I think, over east in uh, a different university. But I uh, I have met Dave. Dave or Dan? Because I get confused with the two. Dave. Dave, Dave, who's got passed outdoors, hey? Yep, yep, that's yep. fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we we actually done a bit of work here as well. Like um, he went over to New Zealand and we sent him some whiskey and he took some pictures and, and whatnot. So, no, and... um. Yeah, but no, I never, never met him during uh, NBA or anything like that. Oh, okay. But yeah. I'd have run into him, uh, you know, after. Yeah. Mm. So what's that transition like going from the, the, you know, the secret world of the SAS into the, like, into the public domain, I guess? Because your photo, first time I came across you was your photo was the NBA photo, and then it was on Jace Kelly's podcast. Mm. Well. I know what it was like for me moving from my career to the very being very public. What's it like? What was it like for you? Yeah. Uh, oh, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it too much. I, I don't think um, my profile is that public or anything, but I, uh, uh, so I'm not Does sure, but it doesn't. Mine's a big. But uh, I, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't bother me because I kind of decided I want to leave all that behind. So um, 
Yeah, it's uncomfortable. Don't get me wrong, as you would know, like because you're just sort of taught throughout those, and you you know it's hammered into you to be so um, under the fly, under the radar. Don't don't big note yourself and don't don't put yourself out there and blah blah blah, because that's you know that's just you quiet operator. So it is a little bit uncomfortable to start with when you're like, I guess, see your picture out there and you do all these podcasts and. Um, yeah, it's a bit um, – I wasn't sure how it was going to go, to be honest, uh, or how I was going to feel about it or um, or what, you know, the, the guys I served with as well, what they might think about it, you know, especially doing podcasts and stuff. But end of the day, I just decided that, uh, you know, that's, that was part of my life and it was um, – I'm proud of what I did in that period and, you know, but it's behind me now and I'm just moving forward getting on my life yeah nice so i imagine if if you ever did cop any shit from any of the lads joking or otherwise you probably wouldn't mm. i imagine it wouldn't bother you that much if you've sort of moved on or are you still a bit like ah the boys uh look it ended up i've come to terms with that um they'll, they'll uh, if the guy it's a if they weren't giving me shit then i'd be worried so yeah I'm happy that they're giving me shit about it. Um, yeah, at least nice. I know then, no, I can, you know, they're the ones I trust. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, good man. Good. Yeah. All right. Um, okay, dude. So, um, oh, by the way, any particular, do you do any work with dogs now? No, no, I don't. Any particular um, reason for that? Uh, it's too much hard work to be honest. <laughs> nah, it is. <laughs> I, it is. Well, you know, it's a lot of work and, uh, I talk to Jace Kelly a lot and he's always working. So yeah, uh, look, I love it. Um, I just decided to, uh, I guess put my, um, efforts into a different direction and dogs is not something that you can kind of just do on the side I guess I think it's something that you have to do you know 100% or you have to be 100% involved and uh, committed so and, and you know I just I've left it so long now that I haven't done anything with it that it's the, the capability or the training or the methodology would have gone it would have overtaken what I know. So I would be a couple of years behind on what's out there at the moment. So I would be no use to anyone, to be honest. Yeah. And you'd be making that transition from handler to trainer, which would be a whole new ball game as well. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, man. All right. Well, um, mate, hit us with how'd you get into uh, Whippersnapper? And um, it's, it's amazing that you own and you started that business all on your own. <laughs> <laughs> you son of a bitch. <laughs> so, yeah, no. So, just to clarify, I'll, I'll allow you to clarify that. Mate. <laughs> <laughs> and we did discuss this prior, but I uh, no, I didn't start this business, and no, I don't own it. Um, it was actually started by uh, two guys, Jimmy and Al, two brother-in-laws, in 2014. So, uh, when I was still in the regiment. And I, I came on board with them in 2020. So the company was well established by the time I uh, came on board. But how I got involved was, well, I was uh, drinking some of their product, uh, as you do in, in the military as well, especially in the army. And 
I thought as I was getting out as well, I thought I got a bit of time on my hands because I took some time off when I got out. I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do nothing for a while. And that lasted for about a week before I got a bit bored uh, and decided, or, you know, I'll reach out to these guys. Um, so I went on their website and found their info at Whippersnapper Distillery email and just wrote an email saying, ex-military, got time in my hands. I love your product. Would love to learn a bit of how it's made. And, and you know, I've got, you know, I don't need to be paid or anything. Just want to learn something. And uh, so then within 20 minutes, I shit you not, within 20 minutes, uh, Jimmy, who's the master distiller and, and one of the co-founders had replied and was like, yep, let's let's set up a meeting, come down. Because uh, he's just got a, a real big respect for uh, anything military. So ended up meeting him. Uh, He's a, he's a younger fella, like 33, 34 now. Um, so, you know, like mid, late 20s when he started the place. So a, a real um, go-getter. And, yeah, we, we just sort of got to know each other. He, uh, I started out just sort of one day a week or one day a fortnight helping out in production, you know, mopping floors or just moving fluid like liquid around or just generally getting in the way of everyone because I just didn't know what I was doing but um it was really cool you know and I, I just started to really get to know Jimmy and Al and um I just really respected and uh, uh, love what they'd done and what they'd created so eventually he, he sort of said Jimmy sort of said oh you know we want to bring you on board uh you know, part of the team will start you out as a business development, um, you know, business development, whatever manager in the, in the business. And I was like, yep, no worries. So I went home and Googled what is business development. And then. <laughs> uh, like, it's almost like, oh, lucky I did my MBA. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's, well, that's it. Cause Jimmy, he's like, oh, you've done an MBA. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, yeah. No worries. Yeah. Cool. You know about business development. Yeah. Yeah. No worries. Yeah, kill it. 100%. No worries. So Yeah. Um, but typical, like any SF guy, you just sort of, you, you go, yep, yep, no worries. And then you worry about the rest later. So, <laughs> um, like my and, fucking mantra, mate, just work it out on the fly. Hey, that's exactly right. So, and look, it's great. I, um, yeah, did that for about a year. Uh, got to know the business, got to know, you know, the way it operated, the finances, got to know all that kind of thing. And then, um, and then they approached me and said, look, we're, we're starting to expand and, you know, we, we want someone as the general manager to kind of oversee everything um, and help us, you know, move forward with the expansion. So um, that was about a year ago. So I've been doing, yeah, was got the general manager gig and been doing that for about a year now. Yeah, cool, man. And you're obviously enjoying it. Oh, I love it. It's great because, uh, you know, I get to work with... Uh, really motivated people. So I think that was the key. I was able to quickly shift from the military where I had, you know, you have a, you have a purpose, you have, you're working with motivated people who love what they're doing and really passionate and, you know, you're all there for a greater good. Uh, you know, when I first sort of got out, I was kind of drifting a bit, lost that purpose, lost that sort of motivation, lost that, being a part of something else other than yourself. So 
was able to quick, you know, now shift my purpose to this business and to, uh, and that, that helped me get more motivated and also, you know, working with people like Jimmy and Al, who are super motivated individuals who've, you know, created this amazing business. Like I feed off that as well. So, uh, and being part of something bigger than yourself, I think that's, something that all of us in the military crave when we get out. Um, so, you know, I was able to shift my purpose from military to, to this distillery uh, and, you know, help it, you know, hopefully in 10 years time be, you know, grow and, and be a bigger, more successful um, operation. You know, so got some long-term goals, got, you know, things working towards it. It, it really keeps me uh, ticking over. That's good, man. And, um, Last thing, man, that I'll, I'll harass you about, and I and I don't want to dive too deep into it because it's a whole conversation. But the whole like transition from the military, veteran suicide, veteran mental health sort of stuff, like, do you reckon that's the antidote to that that type of stuff? Is like go and find a new purpose and an identity outside the military, and keep contributing, keep setting goals, keep like forwardly focused? Yes. I, I mean, I can only comment on what, um, on my personal experience and what's worked for me. Um, I would hate to speculate for anyone else, but definitely I personally, I think it's helped me um, being able to uh, move on, I guess, from the military because it's, it's a way of life. It's not just a job. You're not just changing careers. You're actually changing a way of life and, it's, it's everything to you when you're in the military. So um, there's a huge hole in your life when you suddenly have left the military and now you're, you're a civilian and you're, you know, trying to find your way. There's a massive hole there that is um, difficult to fill. So I, I do agree. Um, finding purpose um, maintaining motivation and working towards goals in the future uh, is the way forward. Uh, it's the way forward for me anyway. Yeah. Do you ever try and link back into that community, like SAS or just general veteran community at all? Or? Yeah, I do. So um, I do try and keep in touch with a lot of mates that uh, I served with. Um it's it's difficult because everyone's sort of you know got their own lives but you know you got to make an act, uh, active effort but i do I, I decided um early on that i wanted to be involved in the veteran community uh because i i think it's it's important to me um and i i do know like how hard it was to transition um well i, I know the challenges i guess what's going through and i think I was lucky. I say I'm lucky. I mean, I think you always create your own luck as well, but I was lucky to find a new purpose and be able to continue to move forward. But I do know that like, it must be difficult if you're stuck in that um, space where you, you don't have a purpose and you no longer have the military and, and where to go. So yeah, definitely the veteran community and specifically transitioning and finding employment is something that I'm pretty passionate about. So um, I do volunteer for, uh, on the, uh, board for working spirit, 
um, which is a local WA charity that uh, helps find employment for all, any veteran, whether they're just about to get out or been out for a while. So they, um, and they do great things and they're probably the leading, um, you know, recruiting agency for veterans in WA. So help out with them wherever I can. And uh, also with a uh, more special forces organization, Wandering Warriors, which is a, yeah, non-for-profit charity that was started actually in Queensland from the SASR Association branch in Queensland. They actually um, created Wandering Warriors and initially was a fundraising type uh, organization, but now has, has become an organization in its own right that offers um, primarily in, in uh, education. So education funding. So if you want to do an MBA, I think like Dan Parker uh, and things like that, where you, yeah, you'll get fully funded scholarship MBA and whatnot. So I've, there was no uh, sort of representation for wandering worries in WA. So I've decided to put my hand up for the state manager role there, which is, um, which has been really good. Uh, I've been trying to get um, the tertiary institutions in WA, like UWA and all that on board to offer scholarships and whatever. So we're in the process of developing that. So just to help with that transition, because I know the MBA helped me. Uh, it definitely helped me being able to speak the right lingo to, to uh, in the corporate or business world. And it helped me just meet people outside of the military, so which was the most important part of transitioning. So I see value in it. I definitely see value in it. And um, yeah, so moving forward with that as well. That's awesome, man. Yeah, sounds like you've got a, you're a finger in a lot of pies, dude. Hmm. Which uh, I would expect from a former special operations dude. So, uh, yeah, nice work, man. So, mate, no representation in WA for Wandering Warriors until you. Yeah, well, because uh, it started over east and because in WA, the regiment itself has another or, uh, another sort of foundation. It's called the Wanderers Education Program or the WEP, which is what actually funded my studies. And that's for members who are serving in the SAS, right? So, um, and I guess this organisation when it was started didn't want to step on their toes or whatnot. But since now I've come, uh, now, now I sort of said, all right, now's a good time to, we can work together. So the, the WEP or the Wanderers Education Program helps serving members and then as soon as they want to get out or out and they come to a wandering warriors and we facilitate them with um yeah scholarships or whatever they need so with that as well i should mention uh specifically on transition to wandering warriors has just created a subsidiary type organization which is called the crate foundation ah nice i saw this and yeah which is and, and what the Crate Foundation does is run a five-day intensive career readiness course for any member who or serving or ex-serving that was in SOCOMAN. Uh, it's based off the US Honor Foundation. Uh, that's where the idea came from and that's where a lot of the content comes from. Um, and it's, you know, 
it's really a five day intensive program to help the special for special operations members or special operation command members. So whether you don't have to be an operator or whatever, you could be uh, anything, um, prepare themselves for transition. And it, and it puts them in front of employers uh, at the end of the, at the end of the five days. So, you know, you do a bit of a presentation in front of, you know, 50 odd people in, in say we did ours in Sydney um, just recently. And, you know, we had representatives from Microsoft, KPMG and, and other big businesses and whatnot. And, you know, and then you do a bit of networking afterwards and that's where those connections are made. So it's a real, a bit of a leg up just for uh, people transitioning. And, and to be honest, it was, um, I did it as a student, even though I wasn't really looking for employment, but I, uh, I wanted to go over and be a part of it. And from the start to the end, it was only five days, but from the start to the end to see the progression uh, from guys, when we walked in, I'll be honest with you, it was almost like we were back in the military. It was like, east first, it was east, first, west. It was like, there was, you know, it sounded like it was so command kind of force fun. Like, all right, you two units have to work together. Right? <laughs> and then there's, then there's like some sewer and like engineers and logistics people in stuck in the middle. Right. But it was like very much regiment and or SAS and commando type. Yeah. And standoffish. And, and in the end, after the five days, everyone had just was like, Hey, we're all in the same boat here. We're all getting out. And now we're all trying to like get on with our lives. And just to see the progression from day one to day five was incredible. And I think it was um, really useful for everyone who was on, uh, involved. Yeah. Mate, I, I reckon that's seriously part of the solution to this, this whole veteran thing is like guys like the dudes who started the Crate Foundation, like people in the community got to do it themselves. Mm. like it's, you know... It's great for everyone to sit around and whinge about DBA and then the military's fucked and this and that, but like you've, you've got to go and do something. So that's why I love seeing go getters like those dudes go and start that shit mm. and they're like, no, oh, I'm just going to do it and then actually help people get out. So that's good, man. I'd, I'd love to mm. probably go along and even just have a look at that and just see what it's all about. Yeah, you should. Well, yeah, coming up, I think they're going to run the next one in March next year. So plan on doing two or three a year. And if it's, yeah, eventually I'd like to do one here in WA as well because it, it would be if you want to settle, uh, you know, if you're from WA and you want to settle in WA, you kind of want to be put in front of employers that are uh, the uh, that are from WA, not not Sydney based. But um, not that there was there was some national based sort of employers that were like, yeah, we have office in Perth, so you know it's not completely a waste of time. But uh, yeah, I think if we do get the interest, we'd run one here as well. But uh, I mean, I loved going over to Sydney for a week and staying in a four and a half star hotel. It was great. I hadn't done anything like that since I got out. So it was awesome to catch up with a bunch of guys as well. But yeah. should mention the guys who run it and started like uh, Blue Andrews, Luke Andrews. Um, you've probably seen him from uh, the TV show Hunted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was saying, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so he's, he's actually heading it up. Um, and Dan, sorry, this is where I get confused with Dan and Dave Parker. So it's Dan Parker, who I think yeah. is ex uh, two commando as well. He's um, 
So he's sort of running that as well, and he's he helps out with one. He runs pretty much Wandering Warriors as well. So yeah, um, real t- two like yeah, real go getters that are um, t- you know just getting it done. It's good. Yeah, I like it, man. I love that mentality, mm. mate. Oh, I'm going to let you go and have some dinner. I think it's 6.30 over in Perth. It's 8.30 here. Um, I had a big bowl of pasta before we started, but I'm, I'm, I'm hungry again. <laughs> <laughs> no worries, mate. Um, mate, um, legit, thanks for, for coming on, bro. I appreciate um, you know you spent the time. I don't know if people realize this, but these podcasts are free. Like, you know, you just knocked off work, had a bunch of meetings, you've got a family and stuff at home and you sit here for an hour and a, or two hours talking about stuff that you've processed and moved on from, potentially reliving stuff and, you know, delving into these topics that you don't really have to talk about. So, um, man, I very much appreciate it, dude. So, um, yeah, thanks, man. No, I appreciate the opportunity to come on, mate. It's always good to have a chat. Easy. All right, I'll, uh, I'll stop the vid. Catch you later, guys. Thank you for listening to the show and we hope it inspired you to be better and live at your potential. Stay tuned for our next episode or check out our range of tactical canine equipment at www.origincanine.com.